0: Very famous reading from Isaiah, who was is known as the Prince of Prophets. Great sort of uh, words, and because he lives 700 years before Christ, and it makes it even more amazing for me. Anyway, <coughs> in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces, with two, they covered their feet. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Let me move to the New Testament from 1 John. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him (coughs) anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commanded us the one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them and this is how we know that he lives in us we know it by the spirit he gave us uh, it's widely recognized by scholars and perhaps
1: by some of you as well that anxiety is on the rise anxiety is on the rise if you look at the last 30 years or so, um, society seems to be getting more anxious, at least a, a certain part of it. What do I mean? Generation Y, give or take, that's people born from 1980, give or take, I have just had a birthday, 1980 uh, to 2000, I was born before 1980. Just, highlights, give that away. But if you're part of Generation Y, 1980 to 2000, more than any other generation before you, a Generation Y has struggled with anxiety. It's fueled by a couple of factors. Overprotective parenting. The world has changed, so you can't have as much freedom as previous generations has. You can't go out as much and play in the wilderness until the light comes uh, to an end. You can't do that anymore. The world has changed. And you need to be made to feel special, says uh, scholarly and educational theorists. And so overprotective parenting makes it more likely for you to have a status anxiety. To keep up with the Joneses—that's that's one reason that anxiety is on the rise. Here's another one: technology. If you're a Generation Y, you're a FOMO person. Does anyone know what FOMO means? I had to look it up because I'm not in this generation. What does it mean? Fear of, out. fear of missing out. There we go. I was born before this generation. There is a fear of missing out because why? Because you have your phone in your pocket, and you are exposed to all the different uh, body shapes and. Uh, Uh, images from around the globe, and you're tempted to compare. That's one thing that technology does negatively, lots of things it does positively, but then also, you fear missing out when people post on Instagram, when they use Snapchat. I just say these things to sound cool, whatever they are. (laughs) Whenever they do these things, they do so very selectively, because you're trying to present an image that is... uh, it's just the best as it can be. The, you, you don't show yourself when you go to Aldi to do your shopping. You show yourself when you're on that jet that you've hired or you've sp- put your head on. You show yourself when you're in a swimming pool. Um, and it's not a Butlins, it's in Marbella or Ibiza. Yeah? Technology has a negative effect because you fear you're missing out and uh, you're tempting, temptation to compare yourself. And it just fuels this, this anxiety. And, and here's one more just the sheer materialistic nature of the West. So you go to Tesco and you're anxious because there are 200, I kid you not, I looked this up, 200 (coughs) varieties of milk that they share. And uh, you can choose from that as you buy products. And you're racking your brains, I need to get best value for money. I need to get the right one, I need to get the one that's best for me. Which one is organic, which one is not, I don't care. Whatever your preference is. And then there's the 233 different varieties of Levi jeans. How do I know which one to choose? And it's got to be the right one. Does my bum look big in this? Do my legs look great in this? Which ones are right for me? All this uh, in a way that different generations in the past did not struggle with. Fuel like petrol or diesel or gas or electric. Anxiety in a person's heart. Different generations, when there were two varieties of beans that you can choose from, they didn't struggle with this. They didn't struggle with the complexity of life. It was simpler back then, so they say. But whether you agree with the educationalists or the social commentators, anxiety is on the rise. This passage is about how to deal with anxiety, in a way. How to deal with an anxious heart. That's what you'll find in verse 19. Have a look at it. It's 1 John chapter 3. It's on your service sheet on page 4. Please follow with me. It's about prayer, actually. You may not realise it just by a cursory first reading, but actually this little passage at the end of 1 John chapter 3 is about prayer. How to deal with an anxious, or even more accurately, a guilty heart. What do you do when your heart is pricked, your conscience is alerted, and you're struggling with anxiety or guilt? Look at verse 19. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. There's something happens when you come, when you're confronted by the reality of the personhood and perfection and holiness and majesty and might and glory of the God of the Bible, that your heart begins to not be at rest anymore. If you meet the God of the Bible, if you're confronted by his goodness, you will be changed. You should become still. You should not be flippant if you're confronted by the glory of the God of the Bible. But this passage is indicating for verse 19 that we have a restless, not just an anxious, but a restless and a guilty conscience that we have to deal with. And and how do we do that? Here's four points on prayer. Four points on prayer. Number one, prayer. Prayer is universal. Prayer is universal. It is interesting that verse 19 comes, a restless heart, a condemning heart, comes not in the absence of God... Not when he's not there, but when he's there. When people see God's goodness and God's glory, they begin to feel anxious and restless and and, uh, their consciences are pricked. But prayer is a universal reality. Now, why do I say that? There is an assumption in the Bible that Daniel alluded to, very helpfully. Prayer is not something that you are told you must do if you read the Bible. Prayer is not something that you must do when you are in trouble, although we do Prayer in the Bible is assumed. So when you pray, says the Lord Jesus, when you pray, prayer is not only assumed is in something we should be doing, but it's also, uh, there is instruction in the Bible to say you should be praying at a certain time in the day. You should be praying frequently or often. There should be a pattern to prayer as well as an assumption to the reality and natural nature of prayer. So you should pray properly and you should pray often. But you can look at the researchers from secular societies and secular universities and secular sources and they say there is a reality to prayer. Non-Christians and Christians, Christians and Hindus, Hindus and Muslims, they pray. You don't have to ask anybody who's been uh, in a foxhole, as the famous phraseology says. Everybody in a foxhole prays. There's no atheists in war. People pray. When there is a national tragedy, like there was a few years back in Paris, what came out immediately? Hashtag pray for Paris. What happened this year? Hashtag pray for Manchester. Hashtag pray for London. There's something that secular people, non-Christian people, put out immediately that there's been a tragedy. Pray. Pray. They don't say who to pray to, but they say pray at this time. You don't have to teach people to pray. When there is somebody who is shipwrecked, When there's somebody in a dire situation, when there's someone in a situation where there's no earthly thing they can do, when they're holding on to their rife uh, laugh, when they're holding on to a piece of wood in the middle of the ocean, they pray. And they get picked up by the rescue vessel and they say, well, you know what? This storm hit me and I capsized. I was there and everything was serene waters and then I just got shipwrecked. And you know what? It was terrible out there. I've not had any food or water, but I prayed like mad they say something like that. It doesn't matter who they are. I mean, I don't know who God is, but I prayed like mad. I don't know if God is there, but I prayed like mad. Why? Because to the degree we understand our own humanity, we will see prayer as a natural human reflex. It's how we're made. If we understand we're human, we will pray because it's what we're made for. Back in the garden, in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, There is a lie that our first parents, Adam and Eve, they believed it, hook, line and sinker. And we believe it still to this day. We think we are self-sufficient. We think we can get by in life. We think we don't need God to help us or lovingly rule over us. We don't need him in our worldview. We can live by ourselves. We can do quite okay, thank you. We're okay, Jack. We can take charge of our lives. We're in control. And that's all because if we believe like our first parents, Adam and Eve, we believe the lie that God is not good, he will not do what he says, and he doesn't care for us. And that lie that is believed quickly by Adam and Eve, but sincerely by Adam and Eve, and by you and me too, it makes us think we're God. It makes us think that we're okay. It's not just when you're a teenager that you think that you're okay, and that you're God. We can live like gods ourselves. We cannot give God a second thought We don't need him in our lives. But when trouble comes, isn't it true that Christian and non-Christian, we will be praying? God, if you're out there, help. It's an articulate and eloquent prayer. It's very interesting that Christians and non-Christians pray when they're in trouble. When you have a sense of your own mortality, you pray. When there is a terrible fire in the centre of London, people are found to be praying and gathering together, looking for some meaning and solace and some comfort. People pray. People pray universally. And let me just restate this, please. To the degree you realise your own mortality, you'll pray. The Sage family are praying now because they see someone who they love in the last chapter of their life. You pray when you realise your own mortality. And to the degree you understand your own humanity, that you are not God, although you're tempted to live like that. You're not immortal, although you're tempted to do really dumb things, like jump off cliffs with bungee jumps and things like that when you're young. And when you're even older and you should know better, you're tempted to drive faster than you should on that motorbike that you've always wanted. That's why I'm not a loud one. (laughs) You're tempted to think that you are not mortal, but when you see and understand your mortality, when you understand that you're human, you will pray, because that's what you're built for. And that's what this chapter teaches us something about. Prayer is universal, number one. Number two, prayer is an approach. Let's get into the passage. Prayer is an approach. Notice how we're taught to pray here by John in 1 John 3 verse 19. Two phrases, one is in 19, one is in verse sentence number 21. First of all, prayer, to pray rightly, this is what you need to do, verse 19. You're to rest in his presence. Let's talking about God now. When we pray, we are to go into, literally, or rest in his presence. Here's another way that we can say it. Verse 21, sentence 21. We have confidence before God. And that's what we're doing. We we, we pray. When we pray, we go into God's presence. And when we pray, we have confidence, if we're Christians, because of Jesus, to enter into his presence when we pray. Many people pray like this. They'll say, um, I put up a prayer for you. Bit like a flagpole that you're kind of pulling up. Many people will say, uh, "Have you said your prayers?" It's a question that you could be asked, maybe. And when people use that language, "I prayed for you" or "I sent up a prayer for you," it, it reveals an attitude of your, your heart or a disposition of your spirit that the prayer is something you do when there's trouble. You send uh, send the siren like in World War II. There's an air raid coming, and that's how you use prayer. If you pray like that, putting up a prayer or say your prayers, that reveals an attitude that uh, people understand prayer to be an information exchange. That's what prayer is. A lot of people think prayer is that you just send information, but let's leave personal interaction to one side. In other words, people treat prayer like I treat phone calls. When I have a phone call with someone, Here's truth, here's full disclosure. I want it to end pretty quick. When I make a phone call with someone, it's about an information exchange. It's a task to be done, okay? I'm letting out all my secrets here. So I pick up the phone, I dial. If I'm honest, sometimes, depending on how many calls I need to make, I'm praying, wrong use of prayer, I'm praying that I get your voicemail. Because then I can be succinct, I can speak in bullet points, and then I can move on to the next prayer. I know I shouldn't think like that, but sometimes I think like that. If there are 13 calls to make in a day, I know that if I get 10 voicemails, I can get all 13 done. If, however, I don't get any voicemails, I know I'll get five done, and there'll be lots to do tomorrow. It's the reality of my heart. I'm sorry. Prayer is an information exchange, I think, just like when I make phone calls. But here's the other thing. I can make a phone call with the TV on. So I can be talking to someone, really, is that how you feel? If I say that every few minutes, like Paul Tripp taught me, it looks like I'm interested, but really I don't care because I'm watching the tennis. Really? And then what happened? Watch the tennis, put you on speakerphone. You can treat prayer like that, but like I shouldn't treat you like that, or phone calls like that, we shouldn't be praying like that, because prayer is not simply an information exchange what the bible describes prayer as is life on life it's a relationship it's an overflow prayer is an approach to god it's about being right there you know there's a difference when you have an audience with someone if i now i've disclosed how i use the phone i'm sorry i'm going to change if i know that i have a date with my wife like i did on friday night the phone does not go on the table. The phone may go in the pocket. The phone certainly goes on silent. I want to be there. I need to be fully clothed. Warning. I don't have to be fully clothed when I'm making a phone call, but I am, I assure you. <laughs> when I'm having a date with my wife, I do not have the TV on watching the tennis. I've tried that. I've got a bruise to prove it. You don't speak to your partner like that, you don't speak to your husband or wife or friend like that, when you're with someone, you're looking at them, I'll teach you communication 101, it's eye contact, it's bodily posturing and positioning, it's preparation so you know what you're going to talk about, you might even dole yourself up so you look appropriate. You don't have to do any of that when you're on the phone call, you don't have to do any of that when you write a letter, when you enter a chat room, when you post something on Instagram or Snapchat or those other modern things that I don't use. You you can be anyone you want. You can pretend to be someone that you're not. But when you pray, prayer is an approach, and it's so much more than information exchange. You don't send up your prayers where you're in trouble. It's about coming. It's about approaching the Maker of the universe. It's about verse 19, resting in His presence. It's about having confidence as you come before Him. You're not in a chat room. You're not fulfilling a call sheet. You're enjoying a relationship with the maker of the universe. But here's what's interesting. Real prayer means you give your full attention. And that's why we say to boys and girls, put your hands together and close your eyes. We don't want you playing with your fidget spinner. If they're older, put your mobile phones to one side. We want you to be attentive to the relationship you have through Jesus with the maker of the whole cosmos. Turn the tennis off and concentrate. Put your phone in your pocket and put it on silent. Here's a novel thought. Turn it off. Because you're being attentive, you're away from distraction. You can pray, can't you? You can send up a bullet and arrow prayer. Sometimes you need to do that because it's an emergency and things have got in the way and you need to shout help. But if that's only the way you pray, you'll be in trouble. No relationship lasts on snacking, does it? So make time to pray. And make time to enjoy your relationship. But I said it was scary. If you're going to be fully attentive to God, here's the other, let's flip it round. God will be fully attentive to you. God will be fully attentive to you. He'll be listening to your voice. Because just like any parent loves to hear the voice of their children, God loves to hear the voice of his adopted children too. But what does that mean? If we're giving God our full attention, if we're putting our hands together and closing our eyes, If we're trying to get away from our attention, things that will distract us and give God our full attention, isn't it pretty scary that God gives us his full attention? It is if you understand who the God of the Bible is. There's a book of the Bible called Job, it's right in the middle. and In the book of Job, Job uh, is a remarkable illustration of faith. God gives permission for Job to be tested in a number of ways, and it looks as if God is absent from the story, but he's very much there. His fingerprints are all over it. And right at the end of the book of Job, from chapters 40 to 42, Job and God have a conversation that's very illuminating. God, who's appeared absent, then speaks. He speaks in the whirlwind. He speaks and reveals his his loving character and his sovereignty and his authority over everything and over Job's life. That's the important thing. And Job in Job 42, five says this, My ears heard of you. I heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. And I repent. Here is Job. He's tempted to think that God is not good, that he's not there, that he can't be trusted, just like our first parents. But here is Job, and right at the end of the book, God reveals himself to him in a fresh way. He speaks. And what does Job say? I heard of you, but now I've seen you. And when I see you, I need to repent. What did Isaiah say in Isaiah 6 that Peter read? I've seen something of your glory, and I'm not fit to be here. How much did Isaiah see? Just saw the edge of his cloak. This is glory. This is majesty. This is power. This is holiness. And so we don't come comfortably we approach carefully and respectfully it's a privilege to come before God in prayer my eyes have heard about you but now my eyes have seen you friends when we pray God becomes real to us what do I mean when you're in the presence of God God stops being abstract you might know that God is a God of love but now you sense his love it becomes real to you you might know something of his power But now you sense his power. You might know that he is sovereign. You might know that intellectually as a concept. But then it begins to change your priorities and rewire the hard drive of your heart when you pray. I heard about him, but now I see him, says Job. And that's what happens through prayer. About 20 years ago, my wife and I, Joe, were involved in some youth work. And a man had become a Christian, marvelously. And they started to date a Christian lady. And it looked like they were heading for marriage. And they, were, they got engaged pretty quick. And, and uh, Paul had a heart to serve in the youth work that we were working in. But then Paul stopped coming. And then the engagement got called off. And what happened was that God, who was very, very real to Paul, stopped being real and something functionally came above the God who he said he knew and loved. So perhaps he was never a Christian at all. He started to drift away, and then he started to live a different life. So the engagement was called off, and the relationship that he said he had with God, he said never existed. When you pray, God stops being just an intellectual concept, and he becomes real to you. You begin to enjoy him and know him, and it's about how you approach him. It means when you pray, you're attentive to God and you become vulnerable. It's not an information exchange, it's more life on life. It's laying out the priorities of your heart, laying out your fears and your anxieties, laying out your hopes and your dreams, and saying to God, God, I lay them before you, you know best, you're in charge, I want to do what's best for your glory and your purposes, not my own help. It's a universal experience and it's an approach, quickly, number three, Prayer is traumatic. Prayer is traumatic. It's an approach, but it's traumatic. Verse 19. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Now why do our hearts condemn us? Because we've gone into his presence We've spoken about Isaiah 6, here is uh, Isaiah, the prince of prophets, a lovely description. He knows God, he's given a hard call by God that he doesn't want to do, but he sees something of God's majestic glory and he says, I do it, but I do it in fear and trembling. That's what happens when you see something of the glory of God. Peter in the New Testament, when he sees the resurrected King Jesus, he doesn't say, right, let's get to it, he says, my Lord and my God. And falls on his knees, he he sees something of the majesty of King Jesus. I'm a sinful man, get away from me. That's what happens when you see something of the greatness and the goodness of God. You don't come casually before God, you don't say, yeah God. God is our Father, but he's also the the almighty King of the universe. He's the judge of all. And he's the saviour of all. Prayer is traumatic when we come before God. We come before God carefully and reverently and mindfully of who he is. There should be an appropriate tension between the love of God so we come as a child and the fear of God, the respect of God because simply because of who he is and he hasn't changed from the days of Job and Isaiah and Peter. Isn't this normal? Something of verse 19, when we come into the presence of God, our hearts condemn us. When you come into the light you will see how dark things really are. When you uh, are in a dark room and your, your eyes get used to it and then you come into a bright light, You your eyes shut and, you, and you're kind of shocked, aren't you? And in the same way, when you see in prayer, when you're reading the Bible, when you're reminded of a truth of the Scriptures, as you sing a song, aren't you sometimes caused just to be still and remember the character and nature of God and your heart will... Give you a trauma, as it were, a trauma of coming into the presence of God, an audience of one, the only audience that matters. Why? Why do you get condemned, verse 19? Because the closer you get to the standard, you realise just how far you're short of it. And so you'll get a voice on your shoulders saying, call yourself a Christian after all you've done this week. Call yourself a Christian you don't even love your neighbour. Call yourself a Christian your classmate doesn't even know that you went to church on Sunday. Call yourself a Christian. If the person sat next to you, even this morning, knew what you thought and did and where you went this week, they would be out of here, or perhaps you would be out of here first. When you come into the presence of God, it's traumatic if it's the God of the Bible because you're tempted to think of condemnation. Verse 19 tells us that. Fourthly, more in depth. Therefore, if prayer is a universal experience, If it's an approach, if it's traumatic. Number four, prayer requires assurance. Prayer requires assurance. This is wonderful. Look at verse 19. This is how we set our hearts at rest. Verse 20. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. If prayer is traumatic when we see something of the nature and character of God... We sh- certainly need assurance to come into God's presence because we can't do it by ourselves. That's what the gospel teaches us. 1 John 3, verse 1. 1 John, excuse me, 1 John 1, verse 19. Get our numbers in a row here. If we confess our sins, the Bible says, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 2, 1. Dear children, I write to you so that you won't sin. But if anyone sins, we have one who speaks to the Father on our behalf, an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Friends, let me remind you of the gospel promises. If you are ever tempted to think or you hear someone say who's a Christian, well, the problem is I know that God forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself. You ever heard that? If you're ever tempted to think that, if you ever hear someone say that, what has happened? Just like my friend Paul. They've taken the profession, the promises of God, and they've elevated something above the promises of God. If you're tempted to think, oh, I know that God loves me, but he would never forgive me if he knew what I did. He does know. It says in verse uh, 20, and he knows everything. That's very scary, but simultaneously, if you're a Christian who loves Jesus, that's a great covenant promise as well. Friends, if you're ever tempted to think, I know that God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, this text tells us that you have promoted something above the good promises of King Jesus. And that means that God is not your God, that thing is, that person is, that uh, something that you're giving value and uh, acumen to. You're elevating something against the promises of God, something above it. You're treating something else as God. And whatever that is, whether it be your work, whether it be a relationship that you think... If God really knew what I did, then he wouldn't love me. Friends, God does love you, and he doesn't condemn you. Your heart may condemn you, but if you're a Christian, even if you can't forgive yourself, in Jesus Christ, God has forgiven you. That's the promise of the gospel. So don't elevate anything above what you are feeling or fearing. Paul says in another part of the New Testament, it is God who saves, therefore who's going to condemn us? No one can condemn you if you're in Christ Jesus. No one can condemn you if you've become a Christian or you become a Christian even this morning. When Satan tempts you to despair. Friends, that's a reality of the Christian walk. But don't doubt the good promises of God. Who can condemn you? No one. If you are in Christ Jesus. You must put your heart at rest. Because God is greater than your heart. Think of it that way. Your heart is tempted to uh, condemn you but this passage in the gospel reminds us that God, whatever you hold on in your heart, God is greater than your heart and so therefore you can find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you a story, I think it's true or if not it should be. In the time of the Russian Tsars, there was an elderly man who was dying. His wife had died before him and uh, his son had no place to call home and so uh, he didn't pick up the phone because they weren't invented, but he went to one of the sh- Tsars, one of the very wealthy men in Russia, and said, Would you adopt my son? And he did. He adopted his son, and the older man died. As this young man grew up, it was revealed that he was a bit of a toe rag. He was very good financially with figures, but he loved gambling, he loved betting. And, and very quickly he started to embezzle, to take money from the Tsar's funds. And then creditors came after him and they said, look, pay up or we'll take your life. And he realised that he was going to be exposed in a few days' time because all the accounting of the Tsar's financial dealings, they didn't add up anymore because he'd taken money from him. And so he said, what can I do? I know what I'll do. I'll get into one of the tents and uh, I'll drink myself silly. I'll get drunk. And then I'll take the revolver that belongs to my father and I'll shoot myself. Because I don't want to be found out. Now, unbeknown to uh, most normal people, every once in a while it was the habit of the Tsar to put himself not in his royal expensive clothes, but in the clothes of the everyday man. And he would do that so he could go around and see what it was like for normal people to live, but also to see how normal people treated him. And so one day he got in his clothes, his normal everyday clothes, not his wealthy royal clothes, and he went into the same tent where his son, his son was hoping that he would be able to kill himself. And he saw his son asleep on the books, on the accounting books that were open for all to see. And he could see that he had been embezzling large sums of money away from him. And he saw the empty bottle of vodka and he saw the revolver and he saw what he was up to. And so he wrote him a note. He said, I, the Tsar, will make good all the debts in this book. The next day, the next morning, the young man came to. He had a very bad head. But he realised that he hadn't been able to go through with killing himself. Because he was so ashamed. And he saw the note and he opened it. And it said, I, the Tsar, will make good the debts in this book. That's a wonderful picture of the Gospel. Here is the Tsar. He knew everything, but he said to his son, who had treated him as a mug, who had swindled money away from him, I know everything, but I still love you, and I'll pay the debts that you can't pay. Friends, that's a picture of the gospel. Jesus Christ didn't dress himself up as a normal person, but he came on the long journey from heaven to earth. And I don't know how many more years you've got left before the for God says your days are up, and he calls you home if you're a Christian, or, or you won't be going to heaven, you'll be going to hell for the reality of eternal justice if you're not a Christian. You might be someone who's lucky to have 20, 30, 40, 50 years left in your life, and there are all kinds of bad things in your heart that God could count against you. They're going to jump out, they're going to... Uh, appear in flesh later on selfish actions selfish deeds things that are going to surprise other people that you'll do in the future and things that are even surprise you because you're a creative sinner just like me but do you know what just like the czar said i know what you've done and i love you god says exactly the same thing there's a promise in the gospel the good news that jesus christ came to die for you to stand in your place to pay for your debts to live a perfect life And he looks in the record of your life and says, I've seen what you've done. I've seen the debts that you owe, and I'll pay it all. Verse 20, God knows everything. He knows what you've done. He knows the thoughts that you have thought. He knows the words that you've said. He knows the actions that I and you have committed. And he says, I'll pay the price, and I still love you. This is the gospel. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christian friend, remember this. Non-Christian friend, hear this. Just like the Tsar, God has come on a journey. Fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ walked the earths. He had dust between his toes in the streets of Jerusalem. He died on a cross. He was raised from the grave on the third day. And now he has authority from heaven to say this. I will never, ever, 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 ever forsake you. Verse 20 to close. When our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Let's pray. Father, it's such a heartwarming story when we hear of Les Mis and uh, the priest forgiving Jean Valjean for stealing silverware. That's why it's sold millions of copies and is a wonderful West End show. It's a wonderful, heartwarming story when we hear of a Russian tsar that comes and forgives and pays a debt. But they're made up wonderfully. But this is true. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ coming to pay the debt that we never could. Paying all the resources that we have spent. Father, help us to believe the gospel Help us to cling to it. When we are faced with anxiety, help us to cling to Jesus. When we are guilty and tempted to despair for the sins that we've committed again, help us to cling to Jesus. And remember that he is our advocate, who stands in our place legally. And as we pray, help us not just to fire up arrow prayers, I pray, but help us to enjoy the uh, relationship that we have with you, Father, through your Son that the Holy Spirit in our hearts promises. Help us to approach him carefully. Help us to approach you carefully and to enjoy the relationship that you have made possible through the death and resurrection of your dear son, King Jesus. We praise you for him. Amen.